Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to a very special edition of the TT Podcast. Yeah, it's a special one indeed. This week we've been speaking with James Shaw, who rides for Ribble World Tight and is fresh off an excellent tour of Slovenia. Yeah, it was uh, a pleasure chatting with James. He speaks really passionately about racing and we hope you enjoy the interview. James, welcome to the TT Podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. No no problem. Um, Now, assuming the internet has got this right, happy birthday for the Sunday just gone. That's correct, yeah. Um, You marked the occasion with a fifth place at the Tour of Slovenia. How was that for a a birthday? Yeah, obviously, you know, I know how to party in style and uh, (laughs) 30 degree heat and uh, fast bike race. Why not? How was the, the race in general? Yeah, it was good. I'd say it was real good. It was uh, five days, started on the 9th, finished on the 13th. Three days of the five were what you'd class as, I guess, like uh, the GC contention days. Um, stage four being the uh, the day where it was all won, won and lost. And then uh, days one and five being uh, made out for the sprinters. Um, but yeah, it was a real good race, real well organised uh yeah it was great there and it's you know we were just i guess a few weeks back we were happy just to be invited to a race let alone uh think of uh doing a result so no it was great it was great fun and uh yeah hopefully team go back next year so i mean you were the the only rider in the top seven that didn't belong to a world tour team at the end um did you surprise yourself with that or were you kind of quietly confident going into it um i was confident in, in myself like, you know, I know what work I've put in going into it and, and I sort of, I knew what power I could do and was confident in myself, but I didn't know how that was going to equate into a result, if you know what I mean. Like, I didn't know if that was gonna good enough for a, a top 20 or if it was, you know, if it wasn't even going to scrape me that. So I was, before the race, Cole RDS asked me, um, <laughs> just sat on the start line to uh, the uh, the Formula One here. That's the Monaco Grand Prix here. Yeah. Now we live on a, a twisty road in Derbyshire, and uh, all the bikers go by. I'll shut the window now just to uh, prevent it from happening again. <laughs> so yeah, I wasn't. I was unsure where uh, how my data would position me in terms of a result, and before the race. I said to Cole, uh, Sturgis, our DS, I said, uh, he said, what do you want out, out of the, the week? I said, well, you know, like a top, a top five would be ideal, you know, a top five or better. But I, I said to him more realistically, I think we're competing for, you know, like between seventh and 10th, um, given like the level of riders that were there, you know, it was stacked with some of the best climbers in the world. Um, so yeah, for us to go there and well succeed our expectations, um, given the rather like shoestring budget we have in comparison to the likes of uh, UAE and, and and Bike Exchange and, and Astana, um, yeah, we're over the moon to over the moon with how we did. What's it like going up against? Obviously, you said it was a field stacked with um, 
you know, the best climbers in the world, in my opinion, probably the best climber in the world at the moment on his home roads. And to only finish two and a half minutes down from him as well, you've got to be quite happy with that as a result. Yeah, 100%. So the last time I raced Pogaccio on a, yeah, like an even playing field, if, if you like, was um, under 23 Worlds in 2018 in Innsbruck, where he was seventh and I was 10th. You know, and obviously since his, you know, success rate has escalated um, rather drastically. Um, so to be, to be back in a race with him, and I've been basically like no idea how I was gonna, I was gonna fare. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was rather surreal, really. You know, he's he's last year's Tour de France winner and probably tipped to be favourite again coming into a. Uh, coming into this year's and he was, you know, he decided to race Slovenia instead of Tora Swiss or Dauphine or whatever, you know, he, he, he chose to come here to race Ribble World Tight. He didn't want to race anyone else. <laughs> um, it was great, you know, and, and he took a team of, um, you know, he took the an A team with him with uh, Rafael Maika and Diego Alisi, um, you know, to, to help him out when those steep hard climbs hit as well. Um, so yeah, it was weird to race him. Yeah, it was really weird. It's almost like a little bit of a fanboy moment as well, you know. Like it's not every day you get to race with <coughs> Tour de France champions like that as well. So you do have to sort of like step back a little bit and just like sort of remind yourself what you are doing here, and you know, and sort of you have to remember to enjoy moments like that because I've done too many races in the past and taken it way too seriously and look back on it and you know, you know, six ten one year later maybe and gone oh actually I forgot to forgot to enjoy that moment so it's something I've sort of like taught myself to do so but yeah I like to say I enjoyed it and I like to think I did the best I could have could have done as well yeah awesome I think that, as you said there were kind of two stages that kind of brought caught a lot of our attention with you and I think I don't know if you had a chance to look to listen back to some of the coverage of it or watch back the coverage on uh, GCN plus or anything but there was a wonderful moment in stage two when Pogacar had gone on a jolly up the road and you were kind of jostling with, rubbing shoulders with, I think it was Rafael Maika, um, Diego Ulisi, uh, Tano Kangert, uh, Mate Mohoric. And Jez Cox on commentary was like, and here's James Shaw, the only continental rider amongst these guys, keeping up with them, uh, really putting it to them. Um, I think he used the phrase, in an illustrious company, which uh, you yeah. definitely were. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Like I remember looking at the star list before, and I thought, I, I, I thought that with the tour coming up, the Giro having not long finished, Swiss being a big, you know, ten day race, Dauphiné having just finished, that maybe like the field of riders would thin out a little bit. Like you know, it, it'd be a with it being with it not being world tour like the others and stuff like that. I thought, oh, maybe, maybe like it'll thin out a bit. <laughs> but it was, if anything, it was the opposite. Uh, it just seemed to attract a, a caliber of riders like that was equal to any other world tour or, or grand tour race. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's you know what what makes our sort of <clears throat> achievement on our own little path um, even more great to say that we you know we can compete with with yeah, like I said the best guys in the world and potentially you know the best climber in the world. Obviously there, there was that day on. Stage two, where Pogacar, I think he was in a race of his own, wasn't he? He was just, you know, 
was he was evidently uh, head and shoulders above the rest. Um, even in terms of like the, the best in the world, he was he'd created a new category above. Um, so yeah, it was <laughs> it's incredible to watch as well actually to see somebody do that. And obviously Dan's there doing the maths as well and working out. I said to Dan like, how many more watts would I have needed to have kept up with him? So on that that penultimate climb on stage two, it was 5.4k long, and I went up it in 13 minutes 21, and uh, Pogacar went up in 12 minutes 18, something like that, and I'd have needed an extra 40 watts to uh, keep up with him. So. <laughs> Yeah, when you put it in terms of like that, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, where, where do you find 40 watts from? You know, he's he's obviously uh, proven himself as the best the best rider in the world at the minute. So, there's one thing for sure. It's going to be an incredible Tour de France. Oh, I think so. Massively. I mean, it's going to be that. But I think with Slovenia as well, I don't know if you got to appreciate it, but it was a stunning race, a very leafy race. I imagine you spent a lot of it kind of staring down at your stem, putting through your numbers, trying to figure out where you were going through the, uh, through the peloton. But uh, it was stunning. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a, stunning, a stunning place. And uh, I want to go back for like a holiday or something to, to like sort of enjoy it a bit more, you know, just to sort of just rocking around in massive heat, riding my bike sort of thing. Yeah, I know it was incredible. And I think there was, I can't remember what day it was now. I think it was stage four. And we came off one of the hills. We'd come off and we'd come down the, down the descent and we hit the valley in the middle. And all of a sudden we just came out of these trees and there's this, this massive um, lake to our left and we sort of twisted along this this um road that sort of ran parallel to it because like the water was like it was like almost like a turquoise color it was incredible it was sort of surrounded by sort of like picturesque mountains in the background and all this forest forest greenery and everything yeah it was it is like uh yeah i don't know what it's like I'm trying to think it's like uh it's like yeah. a tourist board advert well oh yeah it's a great advert for uh, a tourist board this is what I was going to say when you when you brought it up. I'm, the only place I know in Slovenia is uh, Lake Bled, which is like a big, you know, interrailing. I don't know if that's where you were as well, but that's um, it's just meant to be stunning the scenery. But as a as a country, it's you know, it's next to Italy, it's next to Austria, it's in the Alps, um, and I've always been shocked that they've not produced mm. um, more cyclists of the caliber that they are producing now because it's not really that different to the rest of the Alpine countries. And you've obviously just spent a week cycling up the climbs. The, I don't know how it compares to other places in Europe, but I think uh, it's I a think great place to cycle. Yeah, it definitely is. It's certainly like it's on par in terms of terrain with the likes of uh, the Alps and things like that. It is, it's like, um, yeah, it's like Italy and the, and Switzerland had a baby. Um, stuff like <laughs> in the middle of them too, you know, you get like, you know, so you go through Switzerland and you get those really sort of like expensive looking mountain houses and stuff with the big grand driveways and the like. And then you sort of like descend into the valleys and you get that sort of it- Italian-esque, everybody's got a scuff mark on the car sort of thing. Um, <laughs> it's like the two extremes, really. No, it, well, it was. It was a great place. Uh, what truly, it truly was. So, yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to say I'd go back uh, and hopefully do the, that race again. And if not go back on my holidays or something so t- talking about the climbing in slovenia i think the the big one was that stage four that you mentioned um the 2.5 kilometers i think it was up to and i've had to write this down because i don't speak very good slovenian svetogora um 13 oh, average <laughs> 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 
butchered that ad, never known. <laughs> 13% average with ramps at 21%. Now, James, I was very glad to see you abiding by a rule that I would like to bring into cycling, which is that when a climb gets above 12% average, everybody must jersey down, you know, jersey flailing behind them, unzipped, which you were doing proudly going up there. Um, yeah. You got kind of distanced from the main guys, but still managed to keep very good pace and finished kind of seconds mm. behind them. As you were going up there, what was going through your mind? What was that your uh, your DS Colin saying to you in your in your ear? Yeah, so um, yeah, like obviously we'd wrecked the uh, wrecked. We'd looked at the looked at the map and looked at the uh, looked at the profile before, and uh, yeah, two and a half k in like climbing terms is not massively it's not a massive climb you know uh, at that gradient it is but it was the it was effectively we'd done a climb before and then a quick descent and the pace we'd gone up this penultimate climb was incredible we literally just sat there on tempo and bike exchange had ridden it and i think their aim was to try and get rid of me or or fatigue me for the second climb because they were we were sitting on the same time on gc um so we just went on oh, this climb on real pace and then crested the top with maybe a group of I don't know, like five or six guys. We'd lost Mohoric at this point. We'd lost a few others. Did this descent. Mohoric gets back on. Uh, we hit the bottom of this climb and I stay with the guys a bit longer. And then maybe with, I don't know, like what, just over 2K to go, just under the 2K to go, banner maybe somewhere around there. Um, I just lost the bite length and that sort of turned into another bite length. But usually like when you do that, it just tends to go, like, bam, you know, and that's it. You've lost a minute and, and things sort of, you know, tail off quite rapidly, but I sort of said to myself, well, I just got to sit, ride my own tempo now. I don't want to keep, go too hard at the bottom. I'll get too hot because when you slow down on steeper slopes, you rapidly slow down. So just like, you know, ride my own pace and I'm riding along. And then the cars came past um, a K and a half to go or something like that. I was like, you know, don't worry. Just like, keep going, keep going, ride my own pace. Um, and then Micah got dropped from the front group and I was catching Micah before the top of the climb and they pulled the cars out between me and him and it gave me a real boost to like right okay I've got to I've really got to like tuck in now you know if I can catch Micah before the top of the climb you know that'd be you know, season made sort of thing and um the climb was just 500 meters too long for me I last 500 meters I was swerving all the way all across the road and I sort of made my target then just to not get caught from from people behind um just try and retain and concrete my place on GC a bit more um, but yeah, and then we got to the top and, uh, luckily there's a Swanier on the finish line there to catch me because I didn't have a pedal stroke in me to get any further. It's completely, everything was left out there. It's completely gone. Um, yeah, and then I needed, I needed a good half an hour sitting down before I could even think about moving again. Um, and then that was it. Like the cramp kicked in and stuff like that afterwards. It was, yeah, it was, it was one of the real toughest finishes I've seen of a bike race uh, recently. So, but yeah, I, I was happy to be able to consider myself racing it. You know, the fact that I wasn't just there sort of, all right, bottom left climb now, but you know, get dropped. The fact that I was able to compete and race with, with the other guys, you know, that's pretty, pretty chuffed with myself to be able to do that. Absolutely. And it, it translated across on the TV as well. I mean, you could see the heat and I think there was a, a Kahara rider that at the end kind of sat down, within you know 30 centimeters off the finish line against the advertising boarding to the side chinning a fanta or something just trying to get any sort of energy back into himself so he could kind of get away from the uh 
from the fanfare there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, I think, it's the first, probably the first race we've done this year in proper heat. You know, we're quite lucky that we had a we had a warm week before we went here here at home, um, but only hitting like 23s, 24, something like that. So if the Spaniards the, are struggling there, with the heat, hitting, then... Yeah, yeah the Spaniards yeah. are there. Like, they're, they're, they're in arm warmers. The leg warmers like buff ready to go. Like. <laughs> um, yeah, so for us to like get there and it'd be the first race where we um, have proper heat. Um, I think it took its toll on a lot of the lads. I think, you know, a lot of them hadn't, really had much experience before and I think Matt and myself quite fortunate that you know Matt, Matt raced a lot in Spain in the past two years and I've had the had the luxury of, of going to like the Doha Worlds and went to Tokyo last year to have a look at the um, the games course oh no I went in 2019 to have a look at the games course for last year last year that never happened um, so yeah like we've had a lot of sort of like tuition from some of the best um, sports scientists in the world of how to perform in the heat. Um, and that's certainly translated very much across to how to perform. Um, but yeah, that first, the first time you step into the heat, having probably come out of UK winter or something like that, it, it can come as a bit of a shock if you're, if you're not on the ball. So, Kind of on, on top of that, you seem to be really enjoying your racing with Ribble at the moment. And I think that's come across in all the interviews you've given after the race. Uh, and obviously the way you're talking about the race now, I mean, you describe it in like a really kind of, not poetic, but it's just, it's the storytelling of kind of, then Mohoric got dropped and then I was chasing Micah and all of this. It, it's it's like proper, it's very exciting. It, it really is it's exciting to hear. Um, what's it like riding with Ribble Welltie at the moment? Is it, are you, obviously you're enjoying it and you're, you seem to be having a really good time. Is it, um, are you learning a lot? I imagine every day is a school day when you're riding alongside Dan Bigham. Yeah, Dan's yeah, Dan's a funny one. Uh, he's real. He's really um, sort of like science driven in his in his uh, philosophy that he takes to his sport. <clears throat> Hence, you know, he's he's narrow bars and stuff like that. And um, we <laughs> we stopped for a nature break and uh, we were getting back on. And uh, Raphael Mike is there and he was just falling out the back of the peloton to stop for a, a nature break himself or something like that. And you see him look across to, to Dan and look at these bars, look away, but then like take a second look at these bars. Frown <laughs> looks at Dan and goes, who the F are you? Spider-Man? Dan is just like completely confused, like, whoa, like, what just happened? Like, what, what's, what's he on about? Spider-Man, like, where did the connection, why did he think of that? Um, and then I, uh, like, Dan's good enough that, you know, he laughs it off. I think he knows he's, you know, he's going to get some stick for his uh, narrow bars, but he's, you know, you ask him about it and he, he, he's got a, a spreadsheet to, uh, to back up back of his cage you know, he, he doesn't do it for attention or fun or anything um but equally like you know if you want to you're thinking oh you know i want to go faster i want to ride these wheels or uh, i want to ride them tires or something like that you just drop down a down a message and then you know if, if he doesn't know the answer he can find it out and things so yeah it's really helpful like you say every day is a school day and it's always something i've like yeah i've never really got properly stuck into because a lot of the time you're or personally, a lot of the time I've been like sponsorship decided, you know, as to what I ride. You know, I'll go to that team. All right. Well, you have to ride X, Y, Z. You don't really have a choice. But I think the good thing about Ribble is we're actually sort of given, you know, if something's not the fastest or if as long as it can, as long as Dan can prove it, 
it can sort of be negotiated. You know, you sort of say, all right, well, you know, let's ride this or, or, or you know, let's ride that. And, and you know, we're fortunate that POC supplied the team with uh, TT lids, um, but Airbus supplied the team with road lids. Um, so like that is so sort of, you know that's sort of saying right okay well we need fastest on the road for this but then we need fastest for time trialing on this so, you know having that knowledge behind the team and you know Dan charges the best cycling teams in the world for his services and he charges them an absolute fortune for it yeah you know at Riverall it's it's almost there you know on a plate and you'd be you'd have to be daft not to you know pick his brains and learn what you can why you've got that. You know, you've got that uh, source of knowledge because, yeah, for sure, if you go you go to a different team next year, he'll uh, we'll send you an invoice for it. <laughs> well, I was just going to add that we we have spoken to Dan and uh, I've heard him doing bits of commentary on GCN and stuff as well. And if everything he has to say is, I know it's really meticulous and you know it's like really just such incredible. Uh, attention to detail but it's always really interesting as well like I could listen to him talk about where he's finding all this data like all day <laughs> yeah oh no if you're if you're into that you know you could uh yeah you could, <clears throat> could have a field day and he's got his new book out so if you're not into it and you can't sleep at night you, you read that and you'll be out in five minutes as well <laughs> so I, I imagine with with kind of that backing behind you uh the confidence that your team gives you uh, and your confidence in your riding style at the moment. I mean, for example, in Estonia earlier this year, you had that big solo attack, which sadly didn't pay off, but it just shows kind of how much confidence you're putting into your, your style of racing at the moment. Um, that contrasts a bit to something I was reading in Cycling News, where you mentioned that you were thinking about retirement just about a year ago. I've been on the, I've been on Ilman and Iron about the retirement for, you know, I always, and I get to the end of the season, I always say, you know, like one more year, one more year, we'll give it one more year, see what happens. Um, and then I get to the end of that season, I'm like, wow, pff, actually things aren't so bad. Give it one more year, one more year. And then I seem to have a disaster of a year, like last year, you know, the pandemic hit, team stopped or whatever. Um, and then I'm like, oh, all right, then I'll go to River one more year, you know what I mean, sort of thing. And like, yeah, you know, at the end of this year, I'm, I've already started looking for contracts and, and things. So I'm, all, I'm already saying to myself, come on, like, you know, let's carry on another year. Um, but yeah, it's just because I just had moments and just had things in the past happen and or, or you know varying things and it's just so hard I think to keep that faith in yourself when you when you're signing contracts you know just at the start of seasons and things like that you know I, I signed the Swift contract way into February you know when people have been racing already for like you know down under in January or something like that you know. So like the season effectively had already started and I still hadn't signed a contract. And I, it's, it's things like that when I think, oh, you know what, actually, this sport's too hard. And yeah, the retirement things, it is difficult, you know. And, and then I, I have a year like this and I'm like, actually, you know what, I've got 10 more years left in me. You know, I don't want, don't want to retire too soon. So, but yeah, it, it's always been in the back of my head and it's the easy option, isn't it, to like, oh, you know call it a day or whatever but I honestly don't know what else I'd do if I did retire I think that's the thing that's sort of effectively stopping me retire is I wouldn't have anything to do and I think I'd be kicking myself sitting at home having done performances like last weekend watching people get good results with bike races thinking actually like how good could I have been if I'd you know kept at it you know and actually 
I know I was as good as that person and I was just as, you know, as good as that person. All right. I wasn't quite as good as them, but, you know, I'd be sat at home watching bike races thinking, oh, actually, that could have been me. But, you know, I gave up or, you know, I retired, whatever. Um, so, yeah, it is a funny one. And I, do have, uh, I fall in love without the sport from sometimes on a weekly basis. So, it, yeah, it's a difficult one. And I don't think, you know, I think when, when it's time to retire, you'll know. You know, it'll, I, you know, I, I want to get to the, the end of a career and I want to sort of like retire on my own terms as opposed to like, you know, retire on the terms of the sport, you know, I want to yeah. leave the equals, you know, I don't want to be told that oh, you can't have a contract, therefore you've got to retire. I want to get to an age, get to a point where I say, right, yeah, now, you know, I'm retiring on my terms sort of thing. Well, that's spot on. Yeah. I think everyone feels like that. You don't want it taken out of your hands and, Every, everyone obviously has ups and downs as well. Like last year, just for everyone, is a complete write-off, whatever field you work in, whatever you're doing, I think. Um, but as you said, you've had some really positive results and things are looking the right way. So what is on the horizon next? What are your plans for the rest of the year? I think having come out of Slovenia and proved that we can compete on you know, hard terrain, um, being a British team, um, having got in the Tour of Britain, having time trial and team time trial specialists in the team and knowing that Tour of Britain has a team time trial in it, I think we've got to, we've got to concentrate on, on doing something there. Um, yeah, yeah, what, what we do there, I think he's, is. uh, yet to be decided I think I think like Dan certainly he's looking we we, we want to do a top three you know or we want to win the team time trial which people might say well continental team how are you going to be um, you know quick step or whatever um, but uh, you know Dan will sort that out Dan will work something out Dan will do the maths on something and find a he'll find some bizarre tyre that's made from some sort of bamboo off some sort of bongo bongo plant in the far depths of Africa that's the fastest material for a tyre and they'll go and make it with I don't know chopsticks in some far ended wherever just to find two or three watts so um, that'll be that'll be where we I think that'll be where he finds his uh, finds his games um, but yeah I think ultimately like the next big big goal is uh, is definitely Tour of Britain, um, and it's just sort of like filling in the the gaps in between till we get there. Um, so we actually got um, the CTT Team Time Trial Championships coming up this weekend, which obviously uh, will give us an opportunity and be our first run out in Team Time Trial formation. Um, and then I've got my local time trial actually the week after. Um, and then yeah, we've we've actually struggled a lot getting into races um, just given the pandemic, the fact that races have been canceled and it's also had a trickle down effect um, so that, you know, big races get canceled and the big teams want to do the smaller, smaller races and things like that. So um, yeah. What's next in terms of small races? I think we're, we're, we're not sure yet. It's all a bit of a, bit of a question mark really. I think it's interesting what you're saying about the Tour of Britain because I think historically the Tour of Britain is a kind of domestic race, like British race, but 
in modern times, it's become kind of a stomping ground for the World Tour elite. I mean, you had last year, well, the last time it ran, you had Van der Poel won it. The year before that, Julian Alaphilippe won it. Um, I mean, you're, I mean, you're obviously no stranger to the World Tour and you're obviously no stranger to racing against them. Um, kind of harks back to, was it back end of last year when you rode for Team GB in Imola um, yeah. at the Elite Road Race World Championships? How was that as an experience? Yeah, that was uh, my first Elite Worlds. I've done under 23 Worlds before. I did uh, Innsbruck, Bergen, Doha. I did a junior one in Pomfrada in... 2015 when Wiggins won the world time trial championships. Um, but that was my first, like, you know, proper ride. You know, that was like the first proper represent your country job. Um, and yeah, like, you know, the level was unbelievably high. And obviously, Alaphilippe won there and he won the Tour of Britain a few years back. And I think that sort of like ties into what you're saying is Tour of Britain isn't really. It used to be a point one and it sort of was, you know, like a bit of like a professional race for domestics would attract one or two you know, world tour teams or whatever. But now, because it's so close, effectively so close to the world championships, if you don't go to the Welter and you want an eight-day eight day stage race to prepare for the world championships, you go to the Tour of Britain. So it attracts this, like, calibre of rider like no other. It makes the level of the racing ridiculously high, like higher than, you know, any other... Well, as high as any other uh, week-long race. You know, it becomes like a... Um, uh, pays Bass Catalonia level, you know, it attracts loads of world tour teams. Not all, I don't think, but like the majority of. And it just, yeah, like you said, it just becomes that sort of final stomping ground for anybody to find that last bit of form conditioning before the the biggest one day race in the world. And like I said, I got the privilege of representing uh, GB and find that GB flag for the world's just gone in Imola. Um, and yeah, it was. A very proud moment. A very proud moment indeed. That was a stunning yeah. race as well. I mean, I um, I love Italy. So any any race that takes place around there, uh, I do like my F one as well. So seeing them on the track at Imola was uh, was quite yeah. exciting. And then the actual racing itself, that um, that front group and the way Alaphilippe just jumped off the front, I, I was just a very memorable race for the spectators as well. I, th- I feel. <laughs> Yeah, no, hundred uh, percent. Like I'm, I'm the same as you. I'm a fan of all things Italian and cars and motorbikes and all sorts of stuff. And um, to go there and 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 race and finish on always, you know, uh, one of the most effectively, if not the most iconic um, race tracks in the world, given its uh, claim to fame of taking Ayrton Senna. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's an incredible place, incredible place. And like, you know, as a motoring fan to, you know, go there and see that and sort of, you know, be like, whoa, like, you know, you realise you realize quite how big the sport is and, and, and things. And like I say, you know, the Italians obviously upon a great race and to say they got such little notice before the race to actually oh, yeah. organise it and get it on. And the fact they managed to tar all the roads as well. Um, resurfaced the majority of the roads and saw them all out and things. Yeah, they they put on a great race. At, and given, like I say, given the short notice and the last minute, the last minute uh, slapdash, uh, given the pandemic we had. Um, yeah, it was it was incredible, incredible, amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much for for coming on and speaking with us, James. We really appreciate that. Congratulations once again on your performance in Slovenia. That was a, as I say, thrilling to watch and. Uh, I'm sure we'll have the same spectacle when you take the start line in the uh, in the Tour of Britain later this year. 
let's hope so thanks for having me thanks very much james